One of the most beautiful feelings a human being can have is unconditional compassion. The ability to turn our minds and hearts and our bodies when we're physically present to that person in front of us who's having suffering, pain in their life, in their hearts, in their bodies. And we can be totally at ease with it. And when we're not so much kind of lost in what's going on with them, we can turn to our own hearts and feel like, my heart feels totally at ease with this. I'm not pushing away because I don't like what's happening. I'm not closing down because I feel overwhelmed and helpless. But there's an ease of just being with whatever is going on. And I'm sure all of you have felt that sometime in your life, if not even recently. Many of us, if not all of us, have children, loved ones, grandchildren, uh, the young ones in our lives, the elder ones in our lives that we just have to be totally with because that's all we can do, really. This is when we feel genuinely connected with another being and ourselves, when we feel open-hearted. And this kind of caring flows that isn't conditioned upon anything. It's not about any self-serving needs that we need to be needed. Uh, we need to do it out of responsibility. We're just caring because we truly and genuinely care. It comes so spontaneously. It flows freely to others and to ourselves, which is sometimes the harder thing to do. So this is one of the most beautiful feelings that we can have as a human being. We feel a sense of true wholeness, uh, a kind of a holistic sacredness, because we were opening to all of life, not just to the part of life that's easy or that's joyful, uh, but to all of life we're opening. We feel a kind of usefulness, a kind of helpfulness in life. We feel complete as a human being because in some way it gives us a reason for living, a reason for being of use in this world. Not just because it's uh, joyful or pleasant for us, but because we can be with the unpleasantness of life. It gives us a, a feeling of strength, the willingness to care for others, the willingness to care for ourselves in this deep way. The world contains a considerable amount of suffering. If, if you don't know that yet, you're really <laughs> in denial. <laughs> so, in fact, it's said that of these various realms of existence, um, it may not be your belief system, it may not be true for you in direct experience, but it, it, as Manindra says, even if you don't believe it, it's true. Uh, <laughs> that there are these about 31 realms of existence, and this realm of, that we live in, this earthly human being realm, is the, about the sixth from the lowest. 
fourth from the lowest. Four below. Four below what? <laughs> oh, there are four more below this earth plane. Yeah, like the hell realms, etc. The suffering realms. I don't like to call them the hell realms. And uh, it is, because of that, it is the most, um, it has the most opportunity for us to be liberated. Because we're not having so much pleasure that we're getting lost in the pleasure, getting attached to the pleasant experience. That there's enough suffering that it kind of goads us on to find the end of suffering, to uh, know the path and to walk that path that leads there. I don't know about you, but what brought me and many people to this path is because of opening to suffering and seeing the reality of it and finding a way to come to the end of that. And so this is the way I've chosen, and, and many of you, because you're here. So because this plane of existence uh, has a lot of suffering in it, it really It's, real, it's realistic for us to be able to open to it. It's practical for us. It makes sense for us to do what we can to open to it instead of avoiding it. Doesn't that make sense to you? When courage is, when compassion is activated, we feel courage. We feel a kind of confidence. And a lot of our places of doubt and not feeling confident or because maybe we haven't, to a certain degree for each one of us, we haven't opened yet to enough of that dukkha to feel that we can keep going. We have a certain amount of confidence, but we need more a lot of times. We need more courage to be open to the truth of vulnerability. Sometimes you hear the talk about the Four Noble Truths, the first one being the truth of suffering. There is the truth of suffering. And sometimes I like to use the word vulnerability instead of suffering because we see how vulnerable we are to the changes of life. If something's pleasant, we want more of it. We're not content to just stay there. If it's unpleasant, we run away from it. So we're always moving, always trying to find a place that's different from where we are. We're very, very vulnerable. This is our suffering. The truth of opening to the truth of vulnerability in life, in ourselves, is a really essential thing for us to do as human beings. In recent years, there's been a lot of scientific uh, research on the health effects of compassion. I think all of you if not most of you, have learned about all the uh, research that they've done on Tibetan monks in particular who've practiced compassion for over like 10,000 hours or 100,000 hours, something like that. And they've really found that when they are, they're connected up, up to all this paraphernalia that measures the kind of energy in their brain waves and where in their physical brain things are activated 
or the synapses kind of light up. So it shows what part of the brain it gets activated when there's compassion. What part of the brain gets activated when there's a fight or flight uh, feeling in the mind. And uh, what they found out is that people who had activated compassion when they were faced with suffering through films, basically, in, in this research, through films of people suffering, of you know, groups of people, various different types of people, um, suffering from physical pain, suffering from emotional pain. What was the effect on the beings that they were researched that were doing the compassion practice? And there was a, a real physiological effect in the autonomic nervous system, they found out. These are just the basic things that they saw that, that we as kind of most of us on our level of understanding can take in. Their heart rate goes down when people who have practiced a lot of compassion see pain in, in the world, in people they know or don't know. Their breathing patterns and blood flow are more regulated. And all of this to show that it's preparing them for a certain part of the brain they maybe in recent years they found existed, opposite of the fight or flight mode of the brain, and, and uh, uh, kind of thinking and ways of being, they found that there is this one part called approach and soothe, which is the very opposite of fight or flight. It connects to that place of compassion in, uh, that's activated in the physical brain. And because the blood rate goes, uh, the breathing patterns and blood flow are more regulated, their heart rate goes down, it actually physically and mentally and emotionally prepares people to approach and to actually help, to actually touch, to soothe. This is all from simple practice of compassion really connecting, opening to the suffering of another being and, of course, ourselves. Instead of closing down, turning away, striking out, being overwhelmed, feeling helpless, compassion, on the other hand, activates the ability to connect with whatever is happening, no matter what is happening. It's no wonder that these qualities of open-hearted strength and courage, these qualities of the feeling of holistic completeness are really celebrated in the Buddhist teachings as an inner wealth. All of these, you know, metta, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, generosity, gratitude, all of these are celebrated as inner wealth because it's nothing that no one can take it away from you. And uh, you can't get it from out there. It's by facing what's out there that we grow in these qualities and responding to what's in the world and around us. But it's something that grows within. Trungpa Rinpoche called compassion facing reality with an open heart because this is the reality we live in. And we can't just face it with our ideas and our intellectual knowledge. 
you can read all the suttas that are available in, in Buddhism, in Hinduism, in the world, uh, and it won't, you, it won't do you any bit of good if your heart isn't open. You can be an expert at memorizing exactly where they come from, but if your heart isn't open, it, it won't do you any good. You're just blah, blah, blahing from your intellectual knowledge. So because tomorrow we're going to start doing compassion practice, this is why I wanted to complete our metta practice today, I wanted to give a talk on compassion this evening so you have an understanding about it when we do our practice tomorrow. So this reality that compassion faces starts with the Four Noble Truths, the reality of this is the truth of suffering. This is the first noble truth, the reality that we live in. And there is this truth that we can face. It's not something we need to run away from. This is why the Buddha of our time is called the Compassionate Buddha. So it's compassion that helps us actually open to that truth to this truth of suffering, this first noble truth, the reality that we live in. It's no wonder that we as human beings can be so easily distracted in this world, in this electronic information world, where we're constantly wanting to read this and that. We're kind of, I, I know from my own experience that I get information greedy. What's happening in the world? What's happening in the Dharma? Sometimes it, it really is just an overload. I get Dharma blurbs every single day and I really, even that, I have to let go of. It's just too much sometimes. We can fill our minds with that and we're constantly running towards what fills us up with some kind of momentary pleasure and running away from what's unpleasant. So this is the distraction that we have in our world, that we, we just can't be still enough to face what's going on in our hearts and out there. And I, I know that most of you have enough stillness, have enough open-heartedness. Many of you have great pain in your life and in, in your life with your family and friends. And uh, you've developed a lot of compassion already so we can't deny that. But there's a lot more to open to. We can't just keep hoping that we're going to patch together a lot of moments of joy so that we can feel happy. We can't keep running away and distracting ourselves from what's out there. I remember I was in a retreat when the tsunami came in, uh, in Japan. And I missed all of that, what was going on. And so when I came home, they were, I heard a lot about it. So intentionally, I went online. And this is not to distract myself, but to face what was going on. And I wanted to see the videos and the home videos of um, those people who were caught in the tsunami. I wanted to be able to face what's happening in the world and not just be in my little comfortable life, you know, wherever I am, and in retreats that are so regulated, and, 
in at home on Maui that that has its amount of dukkha too but um, sometimes we have to do it intentionally to turn our mind towards that opening to what is painful can bring an unimaginable fulfillment in our lives just to be able to see what was going on just in that particular time period when there was a tsunami in Japan that was recently and before that there was a tsunami uh, and uh, that big rain in uh, in Burma but just to be able to open to it and then even though I was far away to be able to offer compassion to offer metta just the little bit that I could was a, was greatly fulfilling to be able to respond to the appeals for help in ways that Steve and I could financially. Just those little things bring our hearts some kind of respite from the confusion that we feel about the pain in the world. This is a lovely um, prose by Khalil Gibran about opening. He says that your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Even as a stone of the fruit must break open that its heart may stand in the sun, so must you know pain. And if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. The reality we're faced with day to day is that we live in this shifting and changing world. And of course, we want it to stay stable somehow, but it's not. The stability that we feel is our own ability to face it. We see and hear more about climate change, earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis, icebergs melting, oceans and atmospheric pressure changing. More, we're more intimate with the global environment than ever before. And because of this information age we live in, there's a frequency and intensity that impacts us so much more than it did 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. Steve and I feel like dinosaurs when it comes to the computer age because we can call our daughter, you know, who's just about 30, and say, do you know how to do this on the computer? Because it's going so fast, we can't keep up with it all. We can be deeply affected by this intensity, this frequency that we hear about the devastation of lives, the suffering of human beings far away. So it's brought so much closer to us. It's not just in our immediate environment. It's so essential to practice compassion nowadays, to be really active in turning our hearts to what's going on in the world so we can respond. Not just so we can stay steady and courageous and open to it, that's wonderful, but that is so that we can actually help and do something more than what we think we can do. So there, there is this being deeply touched by the shifting and changing military powers in other countries. 
the religious, the social, political, and cultural struggles that people experience. On all sides of the fence, not just feeling for uh, those people, those soldiers who, are who have been fighting in Afghanistan and Iran, I, Iraq. I remember my daughter, um, who has close friends there, who uh, they're not there anymore, but when they were there, she said, Mom, would you please write to a few of my friends? It would really help them. And I did write a few letters, and it really felt good to do that, just to write a couple of emails to them. And as I was writing, I was hearkening back to the time I was, as I was writing, you know, these people have to face killing others, but so does the other side. And I could ask myself, can I feel compassion for those on the other side, too? And sometimes I couldn't, and sometimes I could. So can we open to all sides of the fence? In our own country, we see um, there's an, there was an interesting essay, essay by David Loy, a Buddhist scholar and Zen teacher. And um, he wrote a few books. And one of them, in one of them, he points out that we live in a time and culture where, in large part, those are my words, uh, but not totally, our, econo our economic system institutionalizes greed, or I would say normalizes greed. The military not only exists for our protection, but it institutionalizes ill will. Th those are David Loy's words. And much of the media, but not all, my words, is the business of delusion. You know, trying to convince us of something when it's not quite true. It's not quite telling the whole truth. So it's challenging to see this all with an open heart of compassion, of course. We can become cynical. We can become self-righteous and untrusting. We're not seeing the suffering in ourselves when we feel that way. Cynicism, self-righteousness, kind of not trusting others, or not being able to see the good in others. We're so busy judging others that we can't see the suffering in ourselves. Granted, it's triggered by these kind of inequities in the world, but instead of just looking out there, we fail to see what's going on in here in relationship to what's going on out there. But if we're honest with ourselves, as we do this practice of mindful awareness, not just compassion practice, but mindful awareness, we see these harmful qualities in ourselves, qualities where we're holding on, qualities when we're pushing away, being cruel through our self-righteousness, through our indignation, through our feeling that we're better than someone else. Where our, this is our own confusion and delusion. This is emanating from old habit patterns within. Or sometimes we don't feel good enough, which is another habit pattern that causes us confusion and delusion. So with our rational minds, we know these patterns aren't beneficial. 
we can look at them and say, no, this isn't beneficial, and yet they still keep coming up. But compassion practice, metta practice, and mindfulness, the, the vipassana practice, weakens them a great deal. <clears throat> so we, we don't only have to know with our minds and kind of practical way of seeing things, our pragmatic way of seeing things, that this is not beneficial to feel this, but we're actually doing something about it. We're not just giving lip service to what's wrong or right, but we do this practice which is not easy to do to weaken those forces that are so habitual in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. They're harmful. They're patterns that are so deeply rooted. We learn to be really honest with ourselves, to touch the part of ourselves we're not proud of. And all of you have been so honest with what you're feeling, and we, we so deeply appreciate that. We deeply appreciate that you can trust us um, to say what's needed to be said about what's going on deep in your hearts, not trying to um, rosy it up or, or make it different than it is, but to actually say, this is what happens when this outside trigger happens to me in my life, that this is what I feel. And, uh, and sometimes even see, saying that I feel guilty, ashamed. These are patterns that frequently visit the mind. We feel failure, shame, prejudice, disdain for people we somehow feel are inferior to us. Sometimes it is how we feel about ourselves. So of course, there are beneficial and beautiful feelings too, and we don't want to overlook that. But that's, a lot of that is talked about in other modalities. And when you weigh it all out, <laughs> there's not enough talked about in terms of how are we suffering, really? What are the actual places in our hearts that come out, that spin out of control? We can't keep overlooking and pretending that we can cover these up with, you know, other experiences. This is the truth of life, as the Buddha said. The first noble truth is dukkha satcha. There is the truth of suffering. And he said that this has to be open to. This first noble truth of suffering has to be actually recognized and seen. It's the first part of the Four Noble Truths. And if we don't open to this, then the reality uh, to opening to the rest of it is not going to be, it's going to be dimmer, a dimmer view of the rest of it. There's this changing reality of our inner life. When we sit down and we turn our attention to what's happening within, we see this constant, constant change, this vulnerability of life. When we look outside, we see just in this few days here, I mean, the air conditioner was on full blast, and now I walk into the dining room, and because I came from cold, it feels so nice to have the heater on in there. <laughs> it is a little bit of a change for Steve and I, who live in, in pretty temperate weather all the time, you know, to see this 
drasticness of um, being really cold and then being really hot. We have pretty even temperatures, but we do go to places where there's this beauty of change that happens. So in doing this practice, I've heard so many stories about people uh, realizing the strengths they had in facing what was this drastic change in their life, from health to seeing that there was some illness that came uh, about in their own bodies or minds or in someone else's near to them. Touching spontaneously that strong presence of unconditional love around them, in them, facing others who were facing difficulties in their life. And really just by being there, just by having that compassion, not needing to say anything else, not needing to say, you know, any suttas or sutras or the Buddha said this or so-and-so said that, but just by being able to have a strong presence of not flinching in the face of suffering. This is a tremendous help to those around us. Remembering what it means to live a life that continues to deepen uh, when we're facing whatever difficulties there are in ourselves and others. This deepens us in, in wisdom. It deepens us in all the beautiful qualities. We don't build up walls of avoidance and delusion around us. We're able to just, we see them there, which is really important, and then we allow them to melt, to crumble, um, to not be there, and still be able to face life, leading into life with our hearts. I'm going to read something to you that a personal friend went through, and she had, has been our cook um, when we've had our month-long retreats on Maui. This is Margie. You know her, right. And so she's given me permission to read uh, this, what she wrote. when She wrote this for Caring Bridge when she was um, going through something really difficult. She had found out that she had some uh, great health challenge. And so she wrote this on that beautiful site, Caring Bridge, that helps connect all of us to those who are going through a health process, a health challenge. So she started out with this poem called The Guest House by Rumi. A lot of you have heard it. It's a good one. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some future delight. So then she goes on to say, in one week, I will be going to the hospital for surgery that will deprive me of about one-third of the organ responsible for allowing my body to receive the breath of life. Mind you, uh, Margie's a nurse. Margie's a nurse. 
The surgery will also be the means for determining whether I have a non-invasive versus an aggressive form of cancer growing in my lungs. The stakes are high. Rumi reminds me that all of this may be some kind of a blessing with its own gifts to offer. My house feels swept clean. I am somehow feeling more fully alive with a life-threatening diagnosis right here in my face. I am re-examining my relationship to every aspect of my life and asking the questions, how does this serve me and all that is of value to me? What is of value to me anyway? I don't have all the answers, but the process has been enlivening, energizing, and sometimes fun. And so I plan to welcome my next guest honorably. So she has this openness and vulnerability at the same time and courage, tenderness about it. And honestly, I can say because we visited her after her surgery when she was going through her chemo and she's doing well now. <clears throat> and she knows that her health is vulnerable and she's facing life with even more aliveness than she had before, according to her. And even when she was going through the depths of like feeling nauseated and all of that, she still was able to chuckle about what she was going through. And it didn't come from kind of some polite way of um, saying, be at ease with me because I'm at ease, you know, but it really came from a depth of her being. So here, we're opening and facing the vulnerability of being human and really facing it with clear consciousness as much as we can. And for some of us, it is with intention that we're facing it. It's not just because somebody's giving instructions. I know that's how it begins with. But in time, we begin to say, I'm facing this with clear intention. We're facing the inner habit patterns and the realities of life around us and how they interrelate. And we continue our journey so that we can open with more and more honesty. To do that, we need a lot of compassion. It can't just be just forcing our way through it and pulling our petals open. Sometimes we have to use a lot of the other qualities like being patient for when the petals open on their own, being able to face what's inside when we look inside and see what's really there. It helps us to keep our hearts and minds open with understanding and we find some kind of great delight, as some of you have said, to find, to understand things that are not easy to understand and maybe not the best news in the world but we're understanding it more. We see we're more kind when we're open to what's going on. We don't have to push it away because we don't like it. We're more kind because we're not always blaming others for what's going on in our own hearts. Many of you and, and others who we meet along the way say, I know this is my own responsibility. And it's not about blaming 
politics or the economic system or our bosses, jobs, or our relatives. We see that this is the unfolding of the causes and conditions in our life which we fed along the way somehow through delusion, through not seeing, or through just feeding the habit patterns of greed and hatred. We want to keep our hearts open so we have the ready ability to respond wisely. And um, a lot of times I know for myself that I can be so overwhelmed that I don't know what to do. I can feel so helpless that even a moment of giving metta, offering metta to somebody far away, to my own children or grandchildren, I can feel so down about and not be able to do that momentarily. And so that's when I need to have compassion for myself during that time. Not to give up, not to get overwhelmed, especially in, in this day and age. I, I really appreciate the, the younger generation, those of you who are here, who are, um, we have a lot of hope in you to, to carry on to take the truth into your own hearts, whatever you call it, the Dharma, the way it is, whatever it may be called by you, and to um, open your hearts to the realities of that truth, painful and pleasant, and to be able to have compassion and courage to carry those understandings forward in your own life. It's so important. We have this growing sense of urgency I hope in, in the younger generations, I know we do in our generation, to do what we can to help, to reach out and offer our gifts. Many of you have done that with the Dharma in your own communities, um, opening your own homes to uh, let others come into, to let others and, and yourselves share what you know of the way it is and finding the way to the end of the ways that we suffer. To touch the world, which is increasing in speed, increasing in complexity, to be able to touch the world with simplicity. Just our ability, it's a time in, in my life and Steve's life, that the age we're at, to make life more simple and to touch life with more slowness, with more simplicity, and hopefully to be more of a model of that for those of us in, in following generations, our own children and grandchildren. To touch the world with kindness. I, I know um, one of the greatest compliments I received in my whole life is from my granddaughter, Emily. And um, we were, I, took her, I took her on an evening out, just her and myself. She was about eight years old. And um, we went about in, in Maui, you know, doing the little things that she likes to do. And um, then she said, Grandma, you remind me of someone I just read of. And I said, who is that? And she said, Rosa Parks. And I said, oh, why? And she said, well, you're very kind, but you're very courageous, too. And that was the best 
compliment I could have received. Apart from my sister telling me that I looked like the Dalai Lama when my head was shaved. <laughs> I just remember that now. But nothing could be more beautiful to me than His Holiness the Dalai Lama. <laughs> yeah. So we want to do that. All of us really want to do that. When we let go of our to-do list and we're just with ourselves and we just feel how hard it is for ourselves and we can relate how others feel like that. The deepest thing we want sometimes, not all the time, is to just to be kind. Just to have that feeling as much as we can in the world. And, and then, of course, come at it with some wisdom so that we, we know the right thing to do. But anything is good when it comes from kindness. It may not be just the right thing, but it's the best thing. So growing within us is this spiritual urgency also, like us here in this practice, to go within, not just to reach out, but to see what's going on in, our, in ourselves, to take time and to know that inner landscape with clarity, to be able to have that curiosity and that courage to know what's going on in here, not just reading books about all those that went by in our past and what could happen in the future and etc., etc. That's all interesting, and I love that myself. But what's so much more important is to know our own inner landscape and to stop fooling ourselves, to really know who we really are. All of the foibles that come out because of habit patterns, all of the ways that we trick ourselves and trick others, we really want to know that. It's so satisfying to know that. There are so many times when people have come to me and they're, they've got tears because they faced some pain. And somehow, you know, I would think sometimes that, is it because it's so hard that you're crying? And they say, no, it's because I actually faced it. There are tears of gratitude because I actually can open to it. So to know that inner landscape and to touch it with gentleness and not with harshness, so that we can practice doing that with others too. A lot of times we can't really do that with others because we haven't learned how to do it with ourselves. The harshest attitude we have, if, we, if we're honest with ourselves, is towards ourselves. It takes a lot of courage to have that clear view of how it actually is inside, to gently accept the places we're caught in, the places where we, we hate the pain in the body and we can't accept it, and we're caught in that hatred, in that ill will and that pushing away, not necessarily in the body, sensations that we call painful, but we're so caught in the pain of hatred around it, in response to it. 
We want to have a clear view of the places and conditions where there is a sense of freedom, where we're not being caught. And that's what we learn a lot here. A lot of what I've tried to feed back to many of you is to see where you're not caught and really stay there for a moment. To know that you can be free momentarily. Because oftentimes we just kind of reverberate our energy around where we're not free and where it's so hard for us. To accept that part too with gentleness and with like, wow, that's really great that we can do that. So to see this inner world with vividness and notice the habitual forces that create peace, that create harmony within ourselves, that where we're really happy just to be content walking down the road and hearing the loon or sitting here. And it's just so okay to just hear or to just receive that sound and not to go any further with that. There's so much contentment that can be had with such simple things. We don't need so, you know, high bliss. That in itself can be blissful in its own way. There's a saying, I think it's a Yiddish saying, contentment is the highest peace. So through our practice, we learn to recognize this more and more and incline our minds towards what develops wholesome qualities, towards what develops peacefulness, that contentedness of just being with things as they are. We also want to know what the unwholesome patterns are so we can refrain from doing them. If we don't know they're happening, how can we refrain from them? If we're kidding ourselves by not seeing what's going on inside and by just putting our attention outside and blaming the trigger, blaming someone else, and really not turning inside and seeing, this is where it needs to heal in this, these inner forces. So that when we bring compassion to it, there's a gentle healing that takes place. There's a relief. It's compassion is like a medicine. It's like a healing balm. And this insightful knowledge that we learn from Vipassana actually begins to weaken those unwholesome forces and begins to uproot them. So the balm, the, the healing balm is compassion. And the, actually the medicine is uh, insightful Vipassana knowledge. So without doing this quiet inner investigation, clearly recognizing the inner landscape, we can never hope to have a truthful and beneficial effect on the outer landscape of the world. Of course, there are times that we can when we touch the world with compassion without fully feeling that compassion for ourselves, but we can have an even greater effect on the world around us. Look at just somebody like His Holiness the Dalai Lama, 
or Nelson Mandela that has gone through a lot. Both of them have gone through a lot in their worlds. And Aung San Suu Kyi, got, have to put a woman in there too. Um, just tremendous suffering that they've gone through in a way. Um, but I'm not sure that they see it that way. They just see it as this is part of how it is. Yes, they may call it that this is called suffering in the world, but their relationship to that isn't so much so. Um, also, I told you about that interview uh, the other night that I listened to of Aung San Suu Kyi. I'm just remembering this part now where the interviewer said, how was it for you in, in this house where you were in your own house for 20 years? And how was it for you really? Did you, was it painful for you not to go out? Was there a lot of suffering? And she said, actually, no. She said, I, I, I really didn't feel like I, suffering, I suffered at all. I had my practice. She has a lot of Dhamma books around her. And she said, she said, I realized that I'm not a gadabout. <laughs> that, was, that was really interesting to hear that part. And she said, I, I was perfectly content being here at home. And um, she didn't feel that she was in great danger. And that was because of her inner protection. Of course she was in great danger. But she'd be able to face it, probably. So we may not be able to radically change the world, but we can transform our own hearts. That we can do. And it's possible for every single one of us to do that. And it may not be completely, but it may be a big, huge change in our uh, relationship to ourselves and to the world, to feel this compassion, to be able to really activate it in our lives. It's what makes us face the first of the Four Noble Truths and to continue on the path to see that there is a cause, there is an end to this cause, and that we can walk on the path to the end of this uh, suffering, which is the Eightfold Noble Path. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right. It just stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts. And where else can it really, we truly have an effect? That has infinite outreach in the world because we're so infinitely connected with everything and everyone else that one change that we make in ourselves has a rippling effect on everyone else. So it's usually thought of in terms of saving others, but we really have to look at our responsibility as human beings uh, to save ourselves. That may be the first step, and it's a step that often we forget about. All of this is hard to open to, but each moment 
I think as we're here, we find a greater propensity to touch that place in us that doesn't feel so good about another person, about the world, about ourselves. And as I've told many of you, just touch it. You don't have to dig into it or find the reason why. Just be able to feel that place that's difficult in yourself. Touch it back off. Touch it and back off. And in time, it feels it can feel comfortable to be in that place of difficulty. And it's more and more OK. It's not that we become numb to it. We actually can feel more vulnerable with it. But we also can feel more comfortable with the vulnerability. A few years ago, I've told this story before, but there are new ones here. I, someone I felt um, not so close to, uh, a neighbor, came into my house yelling and screaming. And there was a harshness and cruelty in her words, in her actions, in just the kind of way she wove her hands around. She was, and you know, she was much bigger than I was too. And I was caught off guard to this cruelty that I was seeing in her, because beforehand she had been a person that she could approach me and I could approach her and there could be a level of friendliness. But she was suffering because um, of some issue that she had with being a neighbor with us. We were, we were building a road that was on our boundary, side of the boundary, but it was too close to her boundary line. And she was going through a difficult time with her husband not being well. And so I could understand all of that, but still I felt really vulnerable and really that I needed to protect myself because of the way she was coming at me. So as she was yelling and screaming, I felt like yelling and screaming back, of course. I felt a lot of cruelty towards her. I, I really felt like I needed to do something, you know, to protect myself. And I really didn't like the way she was acting towards me, of course. You know, I, I thought, I didn't deserve this. You don't understand. And you're just willing to go there right away without hearing our side of the story. After feeling the cruelty in my own heart, it took that for me to see, oh, yeah, I'm not going to do it, and I wouldn't do it. I don't have it in me to do it, but I really felt like I could hit her. That happens in people. You feel like it, but you're not going to do it, and, and you trust yourself that you're not going to do it. After I felt that cruelty to strike out at her, I felt like, oh, that's what she feels like. That's what it feels like to be cruel. When I could feel it in myself, then I could open with compassion to what she was going through. But before that, I didn't have that feeling of compassion, of openness towards her. It took opening it, it inside myself, to it inside myself. So I have to say that it was difficult to do that, but um, 
and I have to be, you know, with humility, say that I feel those things sometimes. And granted, I had to say, in one way or another, I had to say, that's enough, stop. And uh, we can talk about this with our voice lowered, but I had to speak with a loud voice in order for her her to hear me. And so, you know, okay, the boundaries were made and we could talk. We never really got anywhere except that we could lower our voices and we could agree to disagree. And we haven't spoken in a long time. And so from a distance, I can send her metta. So she was my neutral person in my metta practice today. She was my neighbor. So she wasn't the difficult person. I could see that she could be in my neutral person category. So I just wanted to show you how sometimes it takes seeing the cruelty in ourselves or whatever it is, the, the delusion in ourselves to be able to see that other people can be deluded. You know, one of the hardest things to feel compassion about is when we see people who are deluded, who don't know the way. They think they know what they're doing and they, you know, kill others or say things or do things or write things that aren't true. And we feel not compassionate about their delusion. We just feel in ourselves, why are they doing that? But when we can see the delusion in our own hearts, then we can feel compassion for them. Just if you can imagine how many times you've sat here and not know where your mind has gone, that's delusion. Can you really see that in yourselves? If you can see how your mind goes off and not know what's going on, this is what a lot of people feel like. If we can have compassion for that in ourselves, we can have it for others. It requires us to stretch and to grow and gives us the opportunity to transform ourselves. The far enemy is cruelty of compassion when we want to strike out, which I just talked about. But the near enemy of compassion is despair an unhealthy kind of grief. There is a healthy kind of grief where we're letting go, letting go, letting go of whatever we're holding on to. And that's not the grief I'm talking about. It's the unhealthy kind of grief where we're feeling in such despair that we feel weakened, collapsed within ourselves, helpless. We can't really open to what's difficult in ourselves or others. We might feel pity for oneself or for others. And this is kind of a a collapsing inwardly. It can seem like compassion. That's why it's called the near enemy, this uh, unhealthy kind of grief, despair. It's called the near enemy because it's soft. And maybe we cry. But just because we're crying and we're soft doesn't mean that it's compassion. Sometimes it's this near enemy of despair, of helplessness, of grief. So we have to know the difference. Compassion is able to, 
yes, sometimes shed tears, but is able to really face what's going on and not kind of crumble into ourselves, not feel like we're drowning in the suffering, but we're really just staying stable in our care for the suffering. So there's the compassion for the suffering and there's the suffering. And this unhealthy grief is when we're drowning in the suffering. And true compassion is when we can stay open and caring with it. We have a sense of strength with it. So that's the uh, near enemy. The far enemy is uh, cruelty, and the near enemy is despair. So when we do the compassion practice tomorrow, you'll, you'll understand what that's all about. The quivering of the heart in response to pain is what sometimes compassion is described as. We talked about it earlier in the metta practice this afternoon. When we feel actually alive, we don't feel dead to what's happening. We feel our heart opening. It feels a little bit trembly sometimes, as somebody described. It doesn't feel like totally at ease. It can feel quivering, trembly, like it's opening. And that's good. That's really a good sign. We do that because we want to be awake to life, not dead to life, not kind of numb to what's going on. We want to know the kindness of compassion so we can grow in our lives, so we can let go with what's unnecessary. We can let go into life more and just flow with it as it is, whatever the waves are, whether they're pleasant, whether we can ride them, whether they're that warm um, water that we feel in Maui sometimes when we go in the waves, or it's that crashing wave that comes down on us and it feels like we've broken all of our bones. We can still feel We can face it all, no matter what. So I'd like to end with this beautiful poem by a lovely yoga teacher named Dana Falds. And it's from her book called Go In and In. And this is her poem called Letting Go. Let go of the ways you thought life would unfold. The holding of plans or dreams or expectations, let it all go. Save your strength to swim with the tide. The choice to fight what is here before you now will only result in struggle, fear, and desperate attempts to free from the very energy you long for. Let go. Let it all go and flow with the grace that washes through your days, whether you receive it gently or with all your quills raised to defend against invaders. Take this on faith. The mind may never find the explanations that it seeks, but you will move forward nonetheless. Let go, and the wave's crest will carry you to unknown shores. 
beyond your wildest dreams or destinations. Let it all go and find the place of rest and peace and certain transformation. So let's be with that promise for a few moments. (laughs) 